0: Okay, we'll go ahead and get going. Uh, Others can wander in if they want to, but um, try to get going on time. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful relationship you have bought us. Lord, uh, that you have brought us into your family, that you have made us your very children, that you have given us a citizenship in heaven and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the many uh, provisions and possessions we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you uh, for uh, epistles like this to the church in Colossae that begin to pull back the veil on all that we are, all that we have. And Lord, as we proceed through our study of Colossians, I just pray that you would use this study in each of our lives to deepen our understanding and appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he means to each of us. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, one minor change since last uh, last week... I said last week, if anybody wanted to get the MP3s, they could text me or email me. We no longer have to do that. Mark Reed is putting them on the Riverwood site. So if anybody uh, misses a a study and they want it, uh, you can just go to the Riverwood site like you would for uh, the Sunday morning service or something, and you will find the... uh, the Sunday School class uh, posted there, so I appreciate Mark being willing to do that. It makes it easier than everybody having to get in touch with me and me email things to you. Uh, you can just go there and and find it. So, okay. Last week we basically spent our time looking at most of our time looking at the first two verses. The introductory comments uh, to the church in Colossae. And of course, as we go through this letter, I'm point, I pointed out again the, uh, the first week, and I have pointed it out again last week, that we're going to be looking uh, at a theme that runs through this entire letter. And I talked about how important a theme is. It's what pulls the letter together. Paul's not just throwing random thoughts out there, he's writing for a reason and he's trying to develop something as he goes through it. And I believe that a sentence that pretty much describes for us what. Uh, Paul is trying to uh, get across in this letter, is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. He was dealing with, uh, you know, we pointed out the first week, he was dealing with some false teachings that were coming in, that We're basically saying either directly or indirectly, Christ is not enough. It's all well and good for you to have put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, but now you need this. You need something else. And there were a number of things they were looking to. We'll see some of this as we get deeper into the letter. Some were looking to the Greek wisdom. Others were looking to er- early forms of the Gnostic knowledge. Others were, were looking uh, to the Mosaic law and the regulations of the law and trying to bring them in. And Paul is writing this letter to get across to them You don't need anything other than Christ. And once we get past uh, some of uh, his introductory remarks and his prayers for the Colossians, one of the main things he's going to jump into is the preeminence of Christ. That there is no one that could possibly in any way add to what Christ has done. And he's going to develop that first. And once he has developed that, then he'll start talking about the, how that's intended to impact our lives. Now, unfortunately, many want to jump over all that preliminary <laughs> uh, information and jump right into how we're supposed to live. But if we don't come to understand these foundational truths, it never will really change our lives. Now, of course, last week we looked at his opening salutation and uh, in which he introduces himself, he tells us who his audience is, and he uh, makes the uh, he wishes to them grace and peace, and I say some want to treat these as pre- i mean perfunctory words, but they aren 't Grace is at the very foundation of all of paul 's teaching. Paul, who once was a legalist of legalists. <laughs> Once he met Christ on the road to Damascus, came to understand the power of God's grace, and grace permeates his writings. And very closely uh, tied to grace is peace, because the more we understand the grace of God, and the way that, and all that has provided for us, and all that it's doing in our lives the more it brings peace into our lives. It convinces us that we are at peace with God, and it begins to bring the peace of God into the circumstances of life. And I made the statement last week, and I believe this is a very, very true statement, that if one's approach to the Christian life leaves them lacking peace, something is wrong. If your view of the Christian life leaves you lacking peace, there's something wrong with your view of the Christian life. And I guarantee you that it starts with the fact that you really, really don't understand grace. Because if you really understand grace, it will bring peace. It will. I can assure you of that. Now, we started just briefly before we ran out of time. We got into really the next section of the letter, that, which addresses Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers. And the prayer that he was uh, offering up, the prayers, revolved around the sufficiency of Christ as their sole source. You know, these prayers tie into this, this theme, because the theme is about Christ being the sole source for the Christian life. And as, as you read Paul's prayers, these, his prayers for them reflect this reality. He doesn't pray for anything that is not already sourced in Christ. His prayers reflect the reality of this truth. Now, I have a little overlap here, but uh, verse 3 says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, we've seen that there's no indication that Paul ever visited the church in Colossae particularly not prior to writing this letter. His tie to this church was more likely through a couple of the uh, men who were converted through his ministry in Ephesus, uh, and that they had gone back to their hometown of Colossae and planted this church. But, you know, his tie to this church was through them and through the words that he received from them regarding this church and he talks about the fact that you know he had begun he was praying for them since he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints so he heard that they were a, a people who had put their faith in Christ and that faith in Christ had manifested itself in their actions of love towards one another. Now, you know, here in the, the Colossian church, and I pointed this out last week, we have an example of the fact that a life of faith produces certain effects. Their life of faith, faith in who? Faith in Jesus. Faith in the work that Christ had already done. That faith had begun to produce in them love for one another. Now, you know, if we become men and women of faith, that faith is meant to change the way we live. James says faith without works is dead. He doesn't say it's non-existent. But he says there is something wrong if we have faith and it's not changing us. Now, I think what's important with James and what's important even with what Paul's saying here is that James is talking not just about being saved by faith. James is talking about living by faith. And there's a difference between being saved by faith and living by faith. You know, to be saved by faith, we believe a very small portion of the gospel. We believe that Christ died for our sins. But a life of faith goes way beyond that. A life of faith begins to understand Who we are, what we have. A life of faith begins taking God at His word as He declares to us what it means to be a new creation in Christ. You know, our lives are meant to declare our relationship to God. And unfortunately, What many Christians' lives say about their relationship with God is that it's very minimal. They might know Christ as their Savior, but they don't know Him as their life. And there is a drastic difference. They've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which has made them children of God. But they really have not come to know their Father. They really have not utilized the door that salvation opened to them to really get to know Him. Too many Christians make this book about themselves. They go to the Bible, and they're looking for answers to fix their lives. They don't go to this book to get to know God. And yet the thing that would transform them is getting to know Him. In a deep, personal, intimate way. When I used to teach there at the Bible Institute, the first class I had with the freshmen, I always gave them a little bookmark. That was a quote by a fellow by the name of Norman Dowdy. I wish I could quote it perfectly, but I can't. But in it, he says, talks about coming to the Word to meet the Lord, not to get your mind full of facts about the Word. Come to the Word to meet the Lord. And the more we come to the Word to meet the Lord, the more He transforms us. You really can't get to know Him in a deep, intimate way without Him changing you. And so many of the things described in the New Testament concerning the Christian is meant to be the result of our relationship with God. Not the result of something we produce. So, so many Christians, you know, have place their faith, or the reason they are Christians is they've accepted the fact that Christ died for their sins. But that is far, that's as far as they go. And, and some, all too many unfortunately, seem satisfied with that. You know, they're satisfied that they know they're going to heaven when they die. But that's as far as they want to go. Jonelle's grandmother was that way. If you tried to talk to her about anything spiritual, it's, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, that's all I want to know. And she was one miserable lady who made a lot of other people miserable. See, when I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, It brought me into his family. And that opened the door for me to walk in close, moment-by-moment fellowship with my Heavenly Father. Despite my struggles, despite my failures, despite my sins, I can walk with him moment-by-moment, day-by-day, Year in, year out. You know, this issue of walking so closely with my father was something that took me a long time to really come to grasp. And it was probably one of the great detriments earlier in my Christian life. You know, I said earlier... This statement, if one's approach to the Christian life leaves them lacking peace, something's wrong. That was true in my life. Because when it came to the issue of my walk of fellowship with God, I had no peace. I, I grew up believing that every time I sinned, God broke fellowship with me. And then I was out of fellowship till I confessed it and then I was in fellowship for about five minutes and then I was out of fellowship again. And I was in fellowship, I was out of fellowship, I was in fellowship, I was out of fellowship, I was in fellowship, I was out of fellowship. Never really knew where I stood. And I would spend probably half to two-thirds of my prayer time in the morning trying to figure out what sins I might have committed so that I could confess them and get back in fellowship. And there was no peace. And you know, there came a point when I began to realize, look, if God... Paid the price that he paid for my salvation. Surely. It's better than what I'm experiencing. If he shed the blood of Christ for my salvation. Why is my Christian life like this? Why is my fellowship like this? And I really began to pray. I began to search. And the Lord began to teach me some things that have really transformed my whole life. You know, I was sitting in a service one time and the pastor was speaking from 1 John chapter 1. Which is considered, you know, the passage on fellowship. And We're going down through it. And at one point, he said, we see here that sin breaks fellowship with God. And I'm looking at 1 John chapter 1. And I'm thinking, where? (laughs) You know, this book will change a lot of your views. (laughs) I often remember Conrad Bowman, who once was an elder at the church for many, many years, talking about how one time he went to hear this very well-known speaker. He was a young believer at the time. And he goes up to him afterwards, and he's going to impress him, you know. And he said, you know, he starts spouting off what all these different commentators had said on the passage that this guy had been speaking on. And this old pastor takes his Bible and holds it up, and he says, Son, this book will shine shine a lot of light on those commentators. This book will reveal so many things to us if we're open. And I'm looking at 1 John chapter 1, and what 1 John 1 says is that if we want to have fellowship with God, we've got to be willing to walk in the light. What is the nature of light? Light is a revealer. Light reveals the way things really are. I used to tell my students, when I got up early in the morning in a dark room, looked in the mirror, I looked pretty good. Then I turned on the light, and everything changed. I no longer look so good. Light reveals. And if you and I want to walk in close fellowship with the Lord, we've got to realize that God is a source of light. And that light is going to reveal things. And a lot of things it's going to reveal are not pretty. A lot of the things that His light is going to reveal are nasty looking. They're things we would just as soon not see. But if we want to walk with Him, we've got to be willing to see them. And acknowledge them. And the thing I have come to understand, and this has been so important in my Christian life, is that Christ's death covered every sin I will ever commit. And there's no reason why God ever has to withdraw from me. But there are times that I will pull away from him because of the discomfort of his light. It's not my sin that breaks fellowship with God. It's my discomfort in dealing with that sin. It's my discomfort in seeing that sin. And my tendency is to try to uh, slip off into the darkness where I don't have to look at that sin. But I'm a child of the light, and I'm never comfortable there. God seeks to bring me back. And I've, become, I've come to see, too, that fellowship isn't just when I feel great with God. Fellowship can be very uncomfortable. You know, Jonelle and I have a very good relationship. Been married almost 50 years now. And that doesn't mean we don't have times that are uncomfortable in our relationship when we disagree. But if one of us does not pull away from the other, it's not that fellowship hasn't been lost. There is a struggle in the fellowship. And there's often a, a struggle in our fellowship with God. He's showing us that there are things that are uncomfortable, but we have to realize He's there with us in the midst of it. He doesn't leave me, pull away from me when I sin. He's there beside me. And that's where my hope lies. What I've come to see is that if sin was breaking my fellowship with God, then my fellowship with God was being maintained by my self-righteousness. It was my sinlessness that I thought was keeping me in fellowship with God. And that's far from true. It's the blood of Christ that keeps me in fellowship with God. And since I have seen that, it has enabled me to walk more and more consistently with my Lord. And another thing it's done is it's caused me to become less focused on my sin and more focused on my Savior. See, what happened in the past, I was very sin focused. I was very self focused. I've I got to conquer this sin. I've got to conquer this sin. I've got to conquer this sin. Now my focus is I need to know my Lord. And when I sin and I do, the Holy Spirit convicts me, I acknowledge it, and I go on knowing that God forgives it. And people say, well, if God forgives that easily... It'll just encourage you to keep on sinning. No, because the light makes that sin nasty in our eyes. We begin to see it through God's eye. We begin to hate it like He hates it. But we look to Him for answers. And we find them in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've understood... The completeness of Christ's work on my behalf. It's given me real peace in my walk with the Lord. Yes, I have my days when I struggle. When the Lord convicts me of something and I don't like what he's (laughs) convicting me of. And I see it and I want to say, no Lord, that's not the way you're saying. And he's saying, yes it is, yes it is, yes it is. And finally I have to say, as much as I hate to admit it, Lord, you're right. This is nasty. It is sin. And thankfully it's covered by the blood of Christ. And I want to grow in my relationship to Him to the point that I find freedom from it. But the freedom isn't going to come from focusing on the sin. The freedom is going to come from focusing on the source of life. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this letter is about. Our source. The Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, the Colossian believers, early in their relationship, had come to see Christ in a way that had transformed them. But I assure you, That what had transformed them was seeing more about Christ than simply that he had died for their sins. And people read passages like this where you see the impact of the gospel and they see someone who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ but his life has not been heavily transformed and they say, well, he he or she probably never really accepted Christ. Because You see the impact that the gospel had on these. But Paul taught a whole lot more. And we'll talk about this more as we move forward. There was so much more to the gospel than what many believers hear today. And so, as they had heard the gospel and they had put their faith in the gospel, and they had had lived by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their source, it had begun to change them in such a way that their reputation had spread. And one of the ways that Paul says that their faith had manifested itself was in the love that they showed for the saints. And the word that Paul uses for love here is agape. Now I'm sure most of you have heard, you know, in the Greek there were four different words for love. Unfortunately, we only have one. Because these four different words had drastically different meanings. There was storge, which was a protective love. There was eros, which was a romantic love. There was phileo, which was a friendship love. And there was agape. Which was very much a sacrificial love. But let me take it a little further than that. Whereas phileo is an emotional love and eros is an emotional love. Agape is not really an emotion. Agape is a value-driven action. Agape is an action that that pursues what is best for someone else. In John 3.16, when it says that God so loved the world, it doesn't use the word phileo. It doesn't say, God so felt a friendly Uh, feeling for the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It says, God so agape the world. It says, God so sought what was best for the world that He was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for the world. Who we see elsewhere in Scripture were the enemies of God were at enmity with him, who were not appealing to him. In fact, they were more the world was more appalling to him. But he agape them. And as the Colossians walked by faith, it manifested itself in an agape love for one another. Didn't mean that they had fond feelings for everyone it meant that they placed enough value on each other that they were willing to sacrificially pursue what was best for one another. And it's interesting in the New Testament, pretty much every time the command to love others is given, it's always agape. God doesn't command us to have a certain emotional feeling. We can't always do that. What He does command us to do is to follow His example of valuing others and being willing to pursue what was best for others, even at great personal expense. And only He makes that possible. Again, it was their faith in Christ that made it possible for them to have this kind of agape love. This wasn't something they could crank out. But Paul says that their love for each other, their agape for each other was so obvious that it had spread. And Paul says that as word of their faithfulness came to him, it prompted him to pray for them. I think this is an important point to note. All too often our prayers center around those who aren't doing well. You know, average prayer meeting. Pray for so-and-so, you know. They aren't doing well spiritually or they've got this physical problem or this issue or that issue. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we need to pray for those things. But how often do we say, man, let's pray for so-and-so. They are really doing well in the Lord. Because I'll assure you one thing. Those who are doing well in the Lord are going to come under attack. They are going to be attacked. Those who are doing very badly in the Lord, Satan can pretty much ignore them. (laughs) They're out there doing their own thing. Who are the ones that Satan's got to be concerned about? Satan and his forces. It's the ones that are walking hand in hand with the Lord day in, day out. The ones whose lives are radiating forth Christ to the lost and dying world around them. Paul, I think, realized even before the false teachers began attacking this church in Colossae, he realized that they would come under attack. And from the very start, he began praying for them. And he prays for them, he says, also because of the hope that That it was laid up for them in heaven. Now, hope is another word that we see a good bit in the New Testament. It's also one I don't know that everybody always fully understands. You know, we tend to use hope as a strong wish. You know, I hope this will happen. Or I hope this won't happen. Uh, In in our everyday vernacular, we tend to use hope as as a strong wish. It's not the way it's used in Scripture. Hope in Scripture is something which God guarantees and which we look forward to with confident expectation. Example, heaven is my hope. Heaven's a very real place. It's a very real place I'm going to. And I look forward to it with confident expectation. And as I look forward to that with confident expectation, it has this impact on my life here and now. had a very clear understanding of what the Colossian believers now possessed. Things that were theirs in Christ. And he knew that these things gave them this awesome potential. And so his prayers were we're f- uh, focused on this hope. I had a f- dear friend in Ireland who, who made the comment one time, and I think it's a good comment. He said, all too often, we talk, when we talk about the Christian life, we talk about what we sh- should be doing rather than what we could be doing. And this is an important distinction in words. Should lays a burden of guilt on us most of the time. Oh, I should be doing this, but I'm not. Could gives us hope. This is what I could be. This is what I have the potential to be. Paul knew their potential. He wanted to pray that they would reach their potential. My prayer for myself, repeatedly, Lord, I want to be all that I have the potential to be in Christ. And I pray it for others often. You know, he... The Colossian believers already had a reputation for doing well, but Paul knew there was more that they could experience. They hadn't experienced everything that was theirs in Christ. And so, he prayed for them. And he he talks about the fact... He talks about their hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard of in the word of truth, the gospel. (laughs) And this is where, again, I point out that when Paul uses the word gospel, he uses it with a lot more depth than we often use it. you go out and you ask the average christian what is the gospel and they'll say well the gospel is that jesus died for your sins and that if you put your faith in him you can go to heaven that's part of the gospel the word gospel means good news yes it is good news that christ died for my sins excellent news glorious news but there's more to the gospel than that it's also good news and we'll get to this in Colossians 2 verse 10 that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and we are complete in him it's good news that I am absolutely made complete in Christ there is nothing that I lack that I need you say well I don't feel that way what we're going to see as we go on, it's not because you don't have it; it's because you don't know what you have, and you don't appropriate what you have. Having it means one thing; knowing what you have and using what you have are another thing. I used to use the example with my students. You know, you could have, an, you know, some of them were struggling from month to month to pay their school bill. I said, you could have an incredibly wealthy relative, die and leave you their mass fortune. And if nobody told you about it, you'd still be struggling next month to pay your school bill. Or if somebody came and told you about it and you said, nah, that's too good to be true and you didn't believe it, you'd still be struggling to pay your school bill. First of all, you'd have to hear what had been left to you. You would have to search out How to appropriate what had been given to you. And by faith take hold of what had been given to you. Then you could pay your school bill. (laughs) And a lot of Christians are struggling in their Christian life. Not because they're lacking. But because they don't know what they have. And they certainly have not appropriated it. It's also good news that according to Ephesians 1.3 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. It's good news according to Peter in 2 Peter 1.3 that we have everything necessary for life and godliness. It's good news that according to Paul in Ephesians we are fully accepted in the beloved. All this is good news. And I'm only... Touching the very (coughs) tip of the good news right now. The New Testament is full of the riches of His grace. And Paul desired that despite the early impact of what they had known, that they would grow more and more towards the things they had been told already in the proclamation of the gospel. And in verse 6, he points out that that message that had come to them wasn't an exclusive message. It says, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood what the grace of God in truth Now in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, Paul tells us the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. It's not an exclusive gift. It's a gift that is offered to all. And wherever it is received, it produces its fruit. Now we've seen the fruit of it in the Colossian believers. But Paul says, look, yours is not a unique situation. Wherever the gospel has gone and is accepted and understood, you know, where the grace of God is understood in truth, it has its impact. But as I pointed out earlier, the problem is the grace of God is often not fully understood. People, Christians accept the fact that it's by grace they're saved. But they don't fully grasp that it's by grace we live. It's the provisions of His grace, day by day, moment by moment, that enables us to live a transformed life. My Christian life has been a journey in understanding the grace of God, and I still don't fully understand it. But nothing has changed me more than understanding His grace and understanding that everything that changes my life is freely given to me even though I don't deserve it. It flows from His grace. And Paul simply tells him, and I'll close on this, he said, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. It was Epaphras that brought word. It was Epaphras that carried this message of the gospel back. Which again, apparently Paul had taught Epaphras well enough that when Epaphras went back, and, and proclaim the gospel. He did it with gratefulness. So much so that it had transformed their life. And this is meant to remind them, remember what has changed you up to this point. It's been your faith and the provisions of God's grace. And you have hope of so much more. But it's all to be found in Christ. Okay, now the next two weeks, I think next week we have prayer, and then the fifth Sunday, uh, Thomas does something. So this is a good breaking point. Uh, it breaks between uh, his prayer of thanksgiving and his petition for them. Uh, and so uh, I guess it will be the first Sunday in November we pick up and go forward uh, with this next uh, section. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the riches of your grace. Lord. It overwhelms me to think of all that you have provided freely for me, even though I don't deserve it. Lord, I thank you that you have made provision that despite our struggles, despite our failures, despite our sins, we can walk with you hand in hand every day. And that when we do pull away from you because of discomfort, when we come back to you like the father in the story of the... Um, prodigal son, you run to meet us because you want nothing more than us to walk with you. Lord, may we learn to walk with you through the good times and the hard and let you do your transforming work in our lives. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.